The rugby fans listening to this podcast may be familiar with the All Blacks, the rugby team of New Zealand. They start each match with the haka, a traditional war dance of the indigenous Maori people. This is the Lovers of Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Gio. Today's guest is Shruti Vijayakumar. Our conversation centered on how cultural worldviews frame climate change issues differently, thereby influencing their approaches. Season 3 is brought to you by a generous grant from the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship at the Said Business School, Oxford University. If you're new to this podcast, please don't forget to subscribe. Now, let us listen to how Sharuthi navigates her multiple backgrounds to create lasting change. Well, Sharuthi, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing well, Jimmy. Really glad to be here. Thank you for having me. You know, New Zealand is very well known for Maori culture, the Aboriginal culture that's over there. Being from New Zealand, what's your most memorable haka moment that you've ever been through? Oh, we have so many, yeah, so many moments with Indigenous people. I think some of the the favorite moments would be, so Māori have a marae, it's called the traditional meeting house, and often we have hui or meetings in these traditional meeting houses, and that might be in the context of learning or sharing ideas or just gathering for some purpose. And you're welcomed onto these marae in a very sacred process called the porphyry, where the base iwi or tribe kind of welcomes the visitors and it's an exchange of multiple speeches and songs and calling of the spirits, calling of the ancestors to come onto a marae. So there was one welcoming to the, onto a marae that I experienced probably a year and a half ago. And it was a gathering of a whole lot of women from all parts of the society, acknowledging our prime minister and really offering our thanks and our appreciation and saying it was our, you know, we really support her and her vision for the future. And so a beautiful cloak, a traditional Māori cloak had been woven for her. It's called a korowai. And we had this very sacred experience of maybe a hundred women leaders being called onto this marae, the prime minister there with her family, this kind of offering of the cloak onto her. And it was really one of those moments where you could feel the support and the energy and the intensity of not only the gathering itself, but also just what gets invoked when Māori really sing and call with the sort of power and intensity that they do. And the Māori culture is so intertwined with New Zealand politics and New Zealand uh, governance, right? Could you explain that a little bit about how that dynamic works? Yeah, that's the intention. I don't know if it's as intertwined as many of us would like it to be. I'd say the the main thing to acknowledge was in 1840, a a treaty was signed between the British who had come here uh, and the Māori that were here prior to them. And this treaty really called for a partnership governance of the country moving forward. What happened was there was a whole lot of mistranslations in the treaty and we ended up with an English version and a Māori version that were quite different. And a lot of this just comes from completely different worldviews. So, for example, the British version talked about land ownership But in the Māori culture, there's no such thing as land ownership. The land is seen as an ancestor, uh, something that we're part of, a part of our family. So the very notion of ownership was not something, you know, that existed, you could say, in in their vocabulary or their worldview. So due to these mistranslations, we've seen society kind of evolve to be what it is. And there's efforts to kind of be more bicultural and really govern with partnership. And that's something our government and business and many people are aspiring for. And the kind of legislative ground is there with this treaty, but due to the mistranslations and just the multiplicity of worldviews, we now have this tender situation of 
trying to bring them together and really weave them, acknowledging, yeah, there's a place for the the richness in the British perspective and, and real value in that and in the traditional Māori perspective, which don't always neatly sit together. You were born in Botswana and you're of Indian origin. How then do all of these different backgrounds of yours come together to frame your work in equity and environmental justice and inclusion? It's an interesting question, Jimmy. I know many people these days often have this sort of combined or mixed or confused or rich identity where there's so much immigration and you know even tra- movement for travel or study happening amongst our generation, at least in certain parts of the world. On one hand, I'm I'm really grateful for the the different worldviews that India, the indigenous Māori, I've been exposed to here to the more kind of Western education I have. So there's a real richness, I think, in the different ways of seeing the world often also a lot of contradiction and conflict, which I couldn't make sense of when I was younger. I think when I was raised, it was predominantly in New Zealand in a Western education system. And at the time, it was amazing. I had a really quality education, no doubt, but I didn't quite realize the parts of me that weren't perhaps nurtured that I could access through my culture. A simple example of this might be the Western education system. I had really emphasized cognitive development and thinking and rationality and scientific analysis. Whereas through my Indian culture, there's an emphasis of cultivating intuition and actually stilling the mind and going beyond the mind to access creativity and wisdom. And there's a belief that, yeah, the mind is okay, but there's much greater wisdom beyond the mind. Whereas I was never taught to still the mind. (laughs) I was taught the mind is is the king, you know, like consult the mind. If it doesn't make rational sense, drop it. That's one one such example. There were times sitting in a consulting environment as a fresh grad thinking, oh, this makes logical sense. Yeah, it'll make us money and it helps the client profit, but it doesn't feel right, you know? And I couldn't often put a a name to that. Sometimes I could find a reason for it. Sometimes I just value different things. Even if it's the most profitable thing, is there a way that we could reduce profits but hold on to more jobs? And that wasn't given space in the system that was so geared toward profit maximization. I don't want to generalize and say all of the West is like that. Absolutely not. But it was one experience within the sort of capitalist worldview that prioritizes individual self-interest and profit maximization, which again, perhaps came into conflict with the Māori worldview that I'd been exposed to a little bit, not so much through education, and certainly aspects of the Indian cultural worldview that, again, I'm I'm so wary to generalize because you'll find the most profit maximizing exploitative businesses absolutely in India as well. But certainly there was a, a thread in my upbringing and in the value system that my parents inculcated in me that said, no, what's the right thing to do? Just to kind of summarize, I've come to appreciate the importance of holding contradicting worldviews and not necessarily reconciling them, but just in holding them and seeing the world in different points of view, it enriches us, I think, to be able to then have a greater, broader understanding, but then also consider what's the best way to approach this and and how can I draw on these different mindsets and worldviews and coming to an outcome that can serve as many people as possible. The tensions between different worldviews actually could give you more tools of how do you solve a particular problem because there's so many different more ways that you can look at it. We can also think of it as including so many more people at the table who might be affected by that decision because you're able to think of how they would approach this problem and how they would view this problem in in their particular worldview. How would you describe an environmental justice through a couple of these different worldviews then? How would you frame it from the Western tradition versus the Maori tradition versus the Indian tradition, business traditions, these worldviews that you reside in Mm. between? Yeah, it's a lovely question, Jimmy. 
my experience of the, again, I'm so skeptical to generalize because even in the West, we have so many different perspectives. And if we go far back enough in the West to the Druids in Ireland, for example, we find a lot of similarities to that of indigenous cultures everywhere. Given that the sort of modern Western approach that I've been exposed to, certainly in my education, would come from the belief that humans are separate from nature. Nature is a resource that exists to help us prosper and thrive and, and live good lives. Often prosperity is seen as something that we get from consuming more things. So by using nature's resources to consume more stuff, we can increase the utility, the happiness of our lives. And so we need to protect nature because it helps us live. You know, it's a very human anthropocentric model where humans are at the center and nature is a commodity, a resource that we take care of to the point that it helps us. So when there's a business case to take care of nature, it'll save us money, it'll save us costs, it'll help us, you know, exist in the long term. Then as a business, we're going to act in a sustainable way. If there's no business case, if it doesn't benefit my business right now, why should I do it? Amazing innovations come out, no doubt. The number of the proliferation of renewable energy, for example, is one that's phenomenal. There's a, a clear business case. We can make it work. It's pragmatic. There's money to be made and we can do something good for the environment. So no doubt it still has a, can have a very positive impact. If we look at the Māori worldview in, in contrast now, the Māori creation story talks about Mother Earth and Father Sky and how Mother Earth and Father Sky were pushed apart by their children, one being called Tane Mahuta, the, the god of the forest, the big tree. And in that process, you know, all of these children could have access to light. They were born and the youngest child of all was humans. And so we're sort of seen as the youngest sibling that have to pay respect to our older siblings, the rest of creation, the animals, the plants, and ultimately to Father Sky and Mother Earth, who are seen as our parents or really our ancestors in some way. And so that whole model gives humans a deep interconnection with nature. You know, nature is part of my family. If nature is not well, I can't be well. It gives humans a real reverence and respect for nature. You know, I'm not here to exploit or extract or conquer nature. I'm here to humbly find my position as the youngest sibling in the family. There's many Māori Whakatoki proverbs that say, I am the land, the land is me. I am the river, the river is me. There's a deep interconnectedness. And then if I come back, come to the Indian worldview, again, this, I don't want to generalize India because you have so many cultural, religious, spiritual traditions and often culture and, and religion are so intertwined as well. But speaking particularly to Hinduism, you pray to the earth before you build a house to kind of acknowledge that this earth was here first, far beyond me, and, and you respectfully do that in a way that that isn't just sort of extracting these resources to construct something. We acknowledge in the Vedantic tradition that the five elements that comprise creation are in our bodies and in a, in a very almost scientific way, we are nature. We are earth, fire, water, wind, and so forth. And so only if the elements are balanced outside can they be balanced inside. If the water I'm drinking is polluted or the air I'm breathing is polluted, my body is polluted and I am nature in a very kind of real sense that culture, again, not always not always lived. The Ganges River is worshipped as a very sacred river and yet it's horrendously polluted as well. So I really acknowledge also the gap between what a lot of the scriptures or the ancient teachers would say versus what's practiced today. And I think that's, again, part of the work on our hands to really reconcile and, and take the best of those teachings and apply them, actually, not just know them or think about them. How would you say that influences the work that you do? From like a, a systems change point of view, if we really want to create a society that's flourishing, thriving, regenerative, 
we need to question the worldview and the assumptions we have about ourselves and the place that we're coming from. Any teams, any groups, any individuals, funders we work with, one of the, the core kind of questions or starting place when, when assessing value alignment and assessing their commitment to really creating system change for us here anyway is, are you willing to yeah question your worldviews and are you willing to at least adopt or consider or embrace different worldviews such as the Smarty view, particularly in New Zealand around, yeah, we're a part of nature and we're here to be of service to it. There are even like processes when we facilitate where you might have a chair in the room that symbolizes Mother Earth and you can sit on the chair and, and really think, what would Mother Earth say about this and really bring her voice into the room? There was actually a, a Maori tribe here and we had a former prime minister that for an entire year had to sit on this board and be the voice of Mother Earth. And he said in that year, his whole perspective of, of the Earth completely shifted and he was far more connected and appreciative of just how important it is to care for her. So the active kind of facilitation processes, methods, solutions that reflect a worldview where we consider nature is here as a resource for us to use with reverence. It's not saying let's not use it at all, but let's also acknowledge that perhaps a different place or a different space might lead to to more effective solutions or, or better solutions. What would you consider to be your primary skill or the most important skill that you have when it comes to the work that you do? I think it's perhaps being able to see things and make links at different levels, both the micro and the macro. So to be able to step back and and have some some sense of this is how our broader society and system works and to see the historical context, to see the cultural influences, to see the design of policy, again, not extensively, but to have a sense of here's the broader economic, social fabric system that we're living in. And here's perhaps ideas I have of how that needs to change or be influenced. And maybe if we did economics in this way and embrace this, so some sense of that broader system, whilst also being able to hone in and go, so what does that mean for, for me as an individual? How do I make that practical? If we want to create a, a well-being economy or a dot-out economy or this different economic system that really puts the well-being of people and nature at the core so that we can all thrive, what does that mean for the kind of person I need to be, for the way I need to lead, for the way I might work with my team, and how can this little piece contribute to this big, this bigger change and, and kind of drawing those connections. And I find often it's easy to, to be in one or the other, but that ability to, to make those connections, I think, gives our little efforts a sense of purpose and helps us connect with the other initiatives we need to, to support the wider change. And so then when you're facilitating these types of conversations, when you're bringing people together, how do you walk through that process? Clearly, you see the fabric. Um, how do you impart that fabric of society onto the people that you're facilitating with? Yeah, I think there's many different approaches depending on the group and the context and their background and where they're coming from. Again, how I might approach a group of young people from different parts of the world that already very much feel the sense of purpose about climate justice would be quite different to a, a boardroom, perhaps business leaders that have been schooled in a different way. So I think knowing the audience and where they're coming from and taking time to really empathize and listen, to be in that space without judgment, you know, sometimes I think in the space of climate work or any sort of justice work, it's easy to think, I've got the solution or I've got the right way or can't you see this is what needs to be done. So as much as I might have ideas or beliefs or a vision, to have some lightness around that and really to have some humility around that and be open just as I've realized <laughs> in my own life and my own journey that the worldview perhaps that, that I thought at the time was right was only one small way of seeing the world. So 
I think that humility and that listening creates already a container where people feel more comfortable to share and more comfortable to kind of perhaps question because they see you're also questioning and you're not there to kind of push something on them, but you're all sort of journeying together. So I think the framing even is around being a guide or a, a fellow pilgrim in a sense, not someone that's showing you how to get from A to B, but I'm still asking these questions just as others are. And it's more of an invitation of, will you, will you question with me? Will you journey with me? And the other thing perhaps that I found really practically is just storytelling and, and helping ourselves see kind of where we've come from and how everything is a social construct, even seeing how capitalism has come to be what it is, how it's only evolved in the last few hundred years, where it's come from. Sometimes the things that seem so real and so entrenched, we forget that they were just created by humans and actually haven't been around for that long. And when we begin to see how that's come to be what it is, there's a sense of, oh, we could rewrite that. And perhaps something switched that switched in my brain going, oh, I didn't realize, I thought that was so, the, so fixed and those are the parameters they're working within. And there's something that I think switches in groups where they realize, oh, perhaps those aren't the parameters and I can be part of the group that broadens or changes or transforms those parameters as well. It's an interesting point. I mean, even the field of economics is probably 150, 200 years old. Exactly. When we start talking about from these ancestral framings of the environment and ancestral framings of society, it's nothing relatively yeah. speaking right from a exactly. time perspective yeah you've mentioned earlier these fabrics of society right you know the historical context the social the economical the people when do you think you first noticed that this was an interconnected web of moving parts i don't think for a while i think there were little signs in my life so for example one of the first moments of questioning as an indian growing up in new zealand i used to often visit every couple of years my grandparents back in India. And so as a child, being confronted with extreme poverty, pollution, corruption, beauty, color, life, dynamism, the hecticness and wonder and sad situation of India, and all of it, kind of being confronted with that and then coming back to New Zealand, which felt kind of, yeah, simple and there wasn't much going on. There certainly wasn't the degree of social issues on the surface anyway. It's got its own issues, but, but very different and certainly not at the same scale. That injustice or that that juxtaposition of these two worlds had me questioning, why do I live where I live? And why do I have the privileges that I have? And how have I come into the situation? And what does that mean in terms of my responsibility? Or it, Some of the early questions were seeded as to why things the way they are, which started the inquiry. Though for many years, yeah, I saw these things as very different and separate issues. About what age were you when you started noticing these and started connecting the dots? Maybe like 10, 11, 12 would have you know, as a child, maybe at 19, 11, 12, going to India and, and kind of just not making sense of it. But I don't know if it would have been an active inquiry. I probably saw the pollution and then was playing with my cousins next minute. <laughs> but I think also for many years, even in my head, there were very separate issues and the understanding of them was somewhat simplistic. When I was in these sorts of social justice communities, it was everyone had their topic, which again was kind of a more reductionist way of viewing these issues. So I think I still saw the issues as somewhat different and even my understanding of how to tackle them was fairly simplistic. Like I went into university initially wanting to do a law degree, thinking, oh, if I could help shift laws around child slavery or child rights or environmental laws, you know, that's the way I could really have an impact. It was either you become a lawyer, you go for the U you go work at the UN because apparently they solve all the world's problems, you know? So it was rather simplistic through the study of economics and politics 
and really more than that through spending time in communities. I went back and lived in India working with a little education startup, but really it was my first time in my own country in the most grassroots communities. I think it's really the the time that's spent with people from different backgrounds hearing their stories, trying things, testing things, working on things where it became much more apparent and clear. Yeah, so what were some of the grassroots efforts that you participated in, some of the projects that you participated in? One in New Zealand, this was while I was in university. A friend and I were very passionate about how we help New Zealanders to see and appreciate the beauty of our country and from that place not pollute it, especially kind of be conscious of plastic pollution. This was 10 years ago before there was any legislation or really business movement around reducing plastic here. And so we decided to build a bunch of kayaks out of old plastic bottles and find a whole bunch of young people to kayak down a big river and around coastline just to raise awareness about plastic pollution and really have this experience of upcycling and the juxtaposition of the kind of rubbish kayaks and these beautiful landscapes. And from the back of that, we produced some environmental education curriculum and shared that in schools around the country, took our kayaks to museum and again, started engaging more in conversations with a regular everyday person about ethical consumerism and pollution and why they buy what they do and how they consume and what drives those decisions. And again, seeing the differences between city and rural and people of generations and backgrounds and economic situations. It was just a really simple initiative that opened my eyes to both the complexity of any sort of change in this way. If through that journey, often we would ask, is this the most impactful thing we could do? And, and what are we really doing? And and is this really systemic? Is this really going to change anything? Or is it just a fun trip? And at the end of it, people forget about us. What's the impact on the people on the journey and the people that watch things? And how do we both do something that that feels meaningful and fun, but continue to be critical about the sort of impact it's having as well. And certainly that was memorialized in a TED talk that you did a couple <laughs> years ago, which I uh, highly recommend people to watch if they have not run into it yet. You mentioned systems change a moment ago and how it can seem daunting at times. When did you decide and when did you realize that you were able to leverage change within this tangled web? It's so funny because I think there are moments, Jimmy, where I've felt really empowered and then disempowered again and then empowered and disempowered. So I don't think it's it's been a perhaps the more complexity you embrace, it's like, oh, this is really overwhelming again, and then you find your way through. So there are a few moments as a child I remember feeling overwhelmed by some of these issues, particularly going to India and you see that, you know, children knocking on your door for money. It's just so big and so overwhelming. And I had an experience in high school fundraising for an NGO called World Vision. And we were just fundraising for projects in Southeast Asia, development projects into education, water, housing, and so forth. And, and a few of us had the chance to be youth ambassadors and go over and see the impact of our funds, our little fundraising efforts as school kids, really, and then come back and share those stories with others to kind of motivate them. And so we went to Cambodia that year, and it was like going back to India, but to a place with now a community or a group that was seeing the impact of the money we raised and meeting people that now had chickens and were chicken farming or children that were now going to school was just mind-blowing. Like it was such a sense of empowerment of, wow, even if it's $5 that I contribute, it makes a difference and, and I don't need degrees and 20 years of experience to get started. I can get started in some way now. So it really activated a strong sense of agency and a, a sense of, you know, what can I do? And, and through university, spent a lot of hours not in the classroom you know, with a youth NGO that was committed to helping young people end extreme poverty. What was it like working for BCG, Boston Consulting Group, and being inside of one of the world's largest consulting companies? Yeah, it was a colorful experience, Jimmy. 
parts of the experience I feel incredibly grateful for and many parts I felt very challenged by. I think on one hand, a really, yeah, good grounding experience. As a student, I have all, had all these ideas of how business leaders think and what they do and to be exposed from your very first day to, you know, executive teams and to actually see how decisions are made and how people think was just a really great way to challenge a lot of my assumptions and actually break a lot of the naiveties I had about how the business world actually works. So from an exposure point of view, really rich and really insightful. I'd say at the same time, I found it really, really challenging culturally. But as much as there's bits of social impact work or a little bit of consulting that perhaps has a broader impact, my experience was a lot of it exists to yeah, help large corporations make more profit. And I spent six months helping restructure a big bank to think about how who would let go to help the shareholders yeah, grow their returns. So that work I found personally really hard to get myself out of bed for. It wasn't something that I felt inspired or a sense of purpose or, or mission around. Of course, that yeah. consulting work is needed and, and necessary and, and really can help clients in a meaningful way. But I also discovered perhaps it wasn't the right fit for me and in terms of the things I valued and the sort of change I wanted to be a part of. So how did you see innovation differ then between what was going on within these large, very well-respected consulting groups with their process for innovation and process for strategy versus the work that you do today and how you do climate innovation and environmental innovations? Like, Where, where were some lessons that you were able to take from both? Yeah, I think one thing the large consultancies do really well is really being very structured in one's thinking and very logical. So we'd approach a consulting project with very clear hypotheses and an approach to kind of collect the data we need, prove or test the hypotheses, come to a conclusion. It felt very robust and very rigorous. And there was a very good effort to get good data to back whatever you were saying and to be really creative about how you get that data if it's not always easy to, to get. And, and so that very structured, logical, hypothesis-driven, almost scientific approach, I think is really rigorous and really strong and gives one a really strong foundation. And it's not something that came naturally to me being an art student. They say often engineers make great consultants because you're, you're taught to think in a very systematic way, whereas my arts degree was much more, yeah, a little bit of that, but a lot of critical creative thinking. I think to complement that, a lot of our work now, bringing different voices into the rooms, so often in the consulting projects, You've got your core stakeholders. In my experience, anyway, we're working with the, the client teams from this large corporation, but the wider stakeholders that might bring different perspectives and a diversity of experience weren't always brought in, even helping a client do product innovation. You know, it was, yeah, you might engage the customer and you might engage the, the client team. But now there's a very conscious effort of with anything we do, how do we engage the local Māori or iwi groups acknowledging that they, to some extent, have sovereignty over the land? How do we really go to the margins to the people that whose voices aren't often heard and, and bring them into the room? And to do that requires a lot of relationship building. It requires a lot of taking time to get to know people and, and to build connection. And it's much more relational and much less transactional in some sense. My experience with consulting was it was efficient and productive, often very transactional, whereas the work now is much more about how do we build long-term relationships with some people that might mean sharing meals for a while before we even start working with Marty. The kind of approach here that I've been guided is build a relationship before you work together. Don't make it seem like we're doing this just for the sake of work. So, And again, as mentioned earlier, tapping not just into the analytical mind and its incredible power, but also the intuition, the emotion, you know, how do we connect with ancestors or connect with the earth and bring that wisdom in a really active way 
Another piece that our organization here, Emerge Institute, really does, a couple of my colleagues really drive this work is around how do we acknowledge the role of healing trauma in doing any work as well? There's so much trauma from colonization, from the way we've treated the land, and how do we acknowledge the role, you know, of all the healing that's even needed between people, within people, between people and nature to really create the thriving future we need. I don't think you could ever really say healing in a consulting context so much, uh, but I think coupled with that analytical rigorous approach, this more holistic approach, I think can ensure it doesn't get too fluffy. It can be really grounded uh, in something substantial and, and really draw on data and theory as needed whilst complementing that with the slower, more relational, holistic attitude. And one of the things that you've also mentioned before in other talks that you've given is the difference between being inclusive and finding a place to work together, where even with inclusion, it still implies that you're inviting people to your table. Finding a place to work together means that you're building the table together. Mm. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Mm. One of the great things now is many businesses recognize to some extent, the importance of diversity and inclusion from the point of view of the benefits to innovation and yeah, coming up with better solutions and holding more conflicting ideas to serve our work, as well as perhaps the moral imperative to really create a society where everyone has access to opportunities. I think that's that's really exciting and the intention is there and I feel like it's growing amongst businesses. Again, it varies to really find a way to bring different voices to the table. I think often the approach we take, I think, again, with the best of intentions is finding a way to bring voices into how we work. And it's kind of the comfortable thing to do. So I've been in organizations where there's an effort to yeah, hire more Māori people or hire more people of different ethnic minorities or hire more people that don't even have degrees. You know, there might be an approach to go and find them and to bring them on board or to target them more with recruitment efforts. But the whole recruitment process is exactly the same often to how you'd recruit anyone else. And once they're onboarded, the culture of the company is exactly the same. And this person that perhaps has never experienced this sort of environment and set of culture and worldviews has to try and adapt and often struggles and often leaves is a pattern I've noticed uh, often and many times. And something I think I've experienced myself, actually, in some respects, you know, entering corporate or consulting environments and think, thinking, oh, I don't really fit here or my whole self doesn't have a place here. You know, maybe there's somewhere else that I could find greater belonging. So I think that's the the traditional kind of approach. It's kind of easier, I think. And occasionally you might find someone that is able to adapt. But if we really want to harness, I think, the incredible opportunity of different worldviews and perspectives, it requires us to hold up the mirror and go, what are the assumptions or the worldviews or the values that underpin the way we work? To some extent, we might want to be grounded in a few constants because that gives us a sense of yeah, purpose and that's just who we are. But where are we willing to really flex or push the boundaries and work in different ways? So if, for example, you know, we wanted to be more inclusive and bring more Indigenous Māori into an organization, how do we acknowledge that maybe a written application process isn't the best way to do that because it's a culture that's much more founded in, in oral communication? If we're wanting to put out tenders for proposals, how do we invite them to build a relationship with us and get to know them rather than just get them to transactionally put in an application for a bit of funding to do a project. You know, the very approach will be different. The way a meeting would be run would be different. We might start with a small karakia, a small prayer. We might spend some time checking in and seeing how everyone is and then getting into the work rather than 
oh, come on, deadlines. <laughs> the very nature of time is so different in our, you know, in different cultures and different ways of working. Much more fluid, I find, even in our Indian culture and a lot of indigenous cultures versus if I was doing a design innovation sprint, rather than going on oh, five minutes for ideation and 10 minutes for synthesis and 10 minutes, of, you know, I might really, yeah, allow that process to feel more loose and open and, and everything needs to start. The most important thing that I'm learning and I'd encourage others to do is really to listen and understand and learn from others because as we begin to to listen and understand and appreciate how someone works it's very easy then to adjust and it doesn't feel like oh, I'm just adjusting for the sake of bringing you on board to look more inclusive but in that process of deep listening and understanding we can really see how this might actually lead to a better outcome for all of us not just the people we're bringing in. Explain some of the work that you do at Emerge Institute. What does Emerge Institute do and how do you and your colleagues push that? Yeah. So Emerge Institute was, um, came to life between myself and three colleagues. And all of us had these sorts of parallel journeys in our work in, in trying to have a social environmental impact on the world. On one hand, we had been a part of projects, social enterprises, initiatives to really drive change. One of my colleagues more in government. One was a tech entrepreneur kind of building technology around education. In our own ways, we had been out trying to have impact through business, through technology, through policy. And at the same time, we'd also been on very much an inner journey of personal development, self-awareness, dismantling our worldviews, our way of seeing the world, trying to grow ourselves in some ways and realized, oh, this inner work is so fundamental to systems change. And many systems thinking models now kind of are showing the intersection of the two. You know, even just the conversation we've had about worldview, for example, if we're not shifting our worldviews and what we think is success or what we think is value, can we really have a deep impact around us? And those kinds of reflections are, are quite hard and, and require a different sort of space for that inner inquiry and exploration, a space different to let me just build and test this new product that I want to scale to have impact. And so Merge was born out of the intention to bring these two worlds together, to support teams of social entrepreneurs and change makers to not only create meaningful practical, tangible solutions, be it policy or research proposals or a new product offering into the market, but to do that in a way where they were really conscious of the place they were innovating from, the worldview they were innovating from, the kind of aware of the personal limitations that arise in themselves and their teams and have the tools to address those. We often talk about the role of intergenerational trauma. So how are they aware of intergenerational trauma that's carried down their lines or in the team and how are you healing that as you go? At a very core level, our, our model or our approach also acknowledges often the, the space or the energy we're, we're innovating from is one of pressure and tension. And I've got to meet a deadline and I've got to have an impact. And sometimes we're carrying guilt about I'm not doing enough. Or there's a lot of, we call it the regressive self, a lot of these feelings that limit and constrict us. And there's, there's another state of being that we can innovate from where we're calm and creative and mindful, lots of them kind of mindfulness. Research is now showing that in that state of quietness and stillness and clarity, not pressure or tension or proving or guilt, there's actually huge amounts of creative potential we can access individually and collectively. So bringing individuals and teams into that place of mindfulness, stillness, calmness, connection, and helping them innovate from that place so that they can internally be in a space um, that really is conducive to have the maximal impact. So that's the work we try and do working with different teams 
on particular issues, be it climate change or restoring the health of oceans or other kind of issues. You mentioned diversity and bringing diversity together. Both the logical mind as well as the still mind is also two factors of diversity that mm. I think tends to get overlooked. We think of innovation diversity as different skills, different backgrounds, different contexts, but not state of mind. Mm. And, and yet that state of mind, bringing that forward for innovation is perhaps one of those missing missing attributes. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a beautiful way. I've not thought of that actually in the context of innovation. It's a lovely link, Jimmy. Yeah. Well, as a tangent, it's some of the things that I do as well, because I run innovation retreats and one of the underlying rules of it is it has to take place next to water or mountains. Mm. So that way you're taken away from the city mm. and you're, you're put somewhere else. When you do that for a weekend, the mind relaxes, the relationships are different because mm. You're no longer in the concrete boxes that we're mm, used to, but you're just absolutely. physically in a different location for that to happen. You know? Absolutely. There's some research coming out. I'm not, again, certainly not the expert or well-versed that shows just the different parts of our nervous system that we're in. And often many of us are in this constant state of fight or flight just because of the, the pressurized lifestyle and deadlines and hecticness of the world we live in and how in that fight or flight mode the body isn't capable of being as creative than if it's in the part of the nervous system that's really yeah, calm and, and relaxed. So I think it's it'll be fascinating actually more and more to draw the links between biology and neurophysiology and innovation and impact, which slowly I think those connections are starting to arise in research as well. Yeah. So talk about some of your work at Ocean Lab. What was that program like? What was the curriculum you developed and what were some of the impacts that came out of that innovation process? The Oceans Lab was focused on the Hauraki Gulf, also known as Tikapa Moana, which is a beautiful piece of ocean near Auckland City, where I live, that's suffering from many, many, many environmental impacts, loss of biodiversity, high amounts of sedimentation, pollution. It's it's really not in the, in the best state. And a foundation was set up some years ago to restore the Māori of the Hauraki Gulf. And the Māori loosely translates from the Māori language to mean life force. So it's kind of restoring a spiritual energy or essence of this ocean, and that was the purpose of this fund. So Foundation North have been our main partners, and so we kind of ran a process over the last yeah, 18 months, really, first inviting teams of or individuals that were working to restore the Hauraki Gulf in some way and really committed to both this inner inquiry or willing willing to do it, but also wanting to kind of translate that into a practical project to come along on this journey. And initially we spent five days on an island in the Gulf itself, connecting to the land, the water, the history of the place, and really similar to your innovation retreats, perhaps really slowing down and acknowledging, yeah, where am I now and what's going on in me and what are some of the challenges in my life that might be preventing me from really innovating and being of service to the Gulf? For some, there were issues around, I've got a lot of things going on at home with my children and, and me being a father and how do I address that? Because that's often on my mind at work. And for others, it was, I've just got too much going on. I can't really be present with my work here and I need to actually, maybe I need to drop this project altogether, the project that I came into this innovation process with. So it was a space to really slow down and, and step back and look at oneself how one is doing the work one is doing, how one is feeling generally, and to address some of the personal barriers, really looking at the whole person. You know, if as a human, we can be well and thriving, then as an innovator, as an entrepreneur, as a policymaker, we can be well and thriving. So it was really five days of, of self-awareness, of going into that deeper place of connecting to oneself and the earth, 
of surfacing and, and inquiring some of the worldviews or habits or patterns that are showing up in our work that may not be serving us that we're ready to let go of. And following that, we had a series of kind of workshops and trainings to help this group of change makers embed this different way of innovating or working into their day-to-day lives and ideally into their teams, which was both great and challenging. You know, there were some people that really jumped on board and thought this is great. I'd love to be more conscious and mindful and still when I innovate, I'd love to connect more with the water and the land, bring this to my team and ensure we slow down and we address the issues as they arise rather than pretend they're not there. And and with others, the, the current system was so strong that they just got sucked back into their old patterns. And one of the very first learnings was we need leadership on board because often the, the places where this was most successful is when an entrepreneur took this to their team rather than, you know, someone within an organization tried to take it out. And, yeah, they might have some success, but it was much harder in those contexts. We saw some beautiful results. There was one, for example, entrepreneur. He has a small business on an island in the Gulf as well, Waiheke Island, and he runs a snorkel business, and he really wanted to grow the impact they were having around ecotourism and education tourism and really using snorkeling as a vehicle to help people connect with the water, realize the importance of preserving it, and to really run a snorkeling business that was contributing to the health of the ocean, the health of the community. And when COVID hit, huge amount of his clients are, are tourists that are coming and wanting the snorkeling experience. So his major kind of customer base was more or less wiped out. Yeah, there's a few tourists from the mainland, but not not so much. And he said over the, the three or four, five months that followed, he was able to initially, initially dropped in revenues, but basically sustain and then eventually grow revenues, which he never thought was possible. And when we asked him kind of what changes he noticed, one of our team members played kind of a major role in coaching him. He began to talk about how he started acknowledging his own well-being more. He simplified his life. He worked on the relationship with his partner. He was showing up as a better leader at work. He valued the well-being of his employees more. They felt more valued. They worked harder. He focused on relationships with the community and with a few key customers that became high-value customers. The community wanted to support him because he was such an integral part of building the community. And he was able to work with this network of stakeholders in a way that really benefited all of them in a way that he thinks he wouldn't have been able to do prior to that. And to see the the increased number of people that are able to connect with the ocean, learn about it, contribute to it, whilst he's able to build a business was really was really heartwarming. Starting from the story of convening people around the canoe made of plastic bottles to convening this snorkeling community during COVID, when you have systemic change goals, how do you bring people along? Yeah, it's a nice it's a nice question, Jimmy. One thought that arises, it's two sides. One, having a clear, somewhat clear and compelling vision that people feel inspired, excited to get behind. So being able to kind of put a stake in the ground and go, look, we're up for doing this process, but we want to really restore the health of the scalp in a really different, fresh way that's not really been done before. Who's up for it? Or look, we've got this crazy idea. We don't know how to build canoes. I've never built anything in my life. <laughs> I've just lived in a city. Uh, who's up? Who's up for just finding a way to make this work? So having some sort of vision that people can yeah, feel a sense of purpose or calling to or feel like, yeah, that's something that I want to be a part of. Again, not everyone will want to be a part of it, but something that, that people that are looking for that can kind of see and identify and, and be a part of. And I think at the same time, not painting the full picture, but having lots of space for people to help make that their own as well. So with this kayak thing, we had some ideas of what this might look like and where we might go. And 
every single day, the, the vision in some ways was changing. The essence of it was the same. We want to support people to connect with nature and understand ethical consumerism. But the, the way we do that and the number of kayaks we built and who we partner with and our approach was, was evolving as with even this Oceans Project. And even now we're going through a process of evolving the whole model in the process of building a much deeper partnership with the Māori organization and looking to scale the whole initiative. And again, the coming months, if it all goes ahead as we've planned, will be kind of holding this back and testing our approach that we've tested on our own for 18 months with a whole bunch of other stakeholder groups going, what do you think about this? How would you change it? Who should be a part of this? What doesn't work? What really frustrates you? So I think having somewhat of a vision, but also having the humility and understanding the importance of really letting stakeholders come and make it their own and add color to it and add their own flavor to it, which is easier said than done because sometimes you'll get contradicting points of view and conflict in that and something that you really want to do someone saying no and you're like, this is the reason I started it and there's egos and there's all sorts of things that arise in that process. But being willing to kind of go through that and hold that and work with that, I think, can lead in the end to a, a stronger community that's really committed to working on the shared cause as well. Yeah, it comes down to a couple of aspects of the co-creation process, but the co-creation process creates ownership of the project at the end of the day. And that mm. ownership part is so powerful in order to mm. take the idea, whatever was created, and then turn it into something else on their own. Yeah. And one thing I find is that there's a subtlety in there, which is someone, the person in charge or whatever else, the leader, whether official or unofficial, has to somehow be able to give permission to mm. everyone else that they can co-create and mm. that they can take whatever was created back home with them mm. and that it is part of the ownership. And I'm finding that to be a subtlety within uh, the innovation space as well. Yeah, very nice. Very nice. Yeah, it's, it's funny hey, how often we need to make that explicit you know, as much as you intend it. Making that really clear, I think, absolutely is needed. Yeah. So if you were to reimagine our education system, what aspects of education would be different? Oh, so much, Jimmy. <laughs> what a big question in so many ways. I think where I would start is even exploring what's the purpose of education. I'm a big fan of Paolo Freire's work. He's written Pedagogy of the Oppressed, and he speaks about the purpose of education is to make humans more fully human, whatever we might make that to mean. I think often education is taught and often even conceived of from a learner's point of view as a very utilitarian thing that if I get this degree or this go through this course, it'll help me get this job or secure something or get somewhere. And it's very much about achieving some goal, often employment related or money related. Not always, but certainly that's one of the dominant things I've experienced in, in education in many contexts. And how do we question the very nature of education? And, and my, if, I, if I had to put an alternative out there, it would be about yeah, building humans that have a really strong sense of character, morality, ethics, that have a strong sense of confidence in themselves, identity to place, to history, sense of empathy, a sense of creativity, humans. How does education yeah, help us really unleash our fullest potential in a way that can be of service to the world? And I really believe there's so much inherent wisdom and potential in, in all people. And a lot of education is just about how do I get you this degree? Or how do I fill your head with information? It's often called the banking system of education. Let me just put things in there. Many of our systems, we become masters at rote learning and memorizing. And I've done this for many, many exams, <laughs> rather than it being a system that takes out my fullest potential and builds me as a really strong, grounded, empathetic, caring, collaborative human that can work with others 
in some way to leave this place better than I found it. So I think shifting the compass would be the, the first point. And as alluded to as well, the approach of education, how does it transform from something that's one way where the teacher has the answers that they're giving to the, to the learner to a much more drawing out, asking questions, creating a container or a space to make mistakes, learn, fail, much like innovation. How can it be where possible, much more experiential where we're learning from different knowledge systems, we're exposed to different ways of learning. We're out in nature, out in community, out engaging with people, not necessarily in this classroom. And then, again, as alluded to, perhaps the worldviews and, and value system that underpin and how can education really help you honor your own culture, learn about the place that you're from, which I think is, is really critical being place-based, but also expose you to many truths and many ideas and many conflicting ideas and give you the space to inquire and journey and navigate all of that rather than tell you how you should be. Great. And so then to flip the question around, last question, to a student or an early career professional, what skill or expertise would you encourage them to learn? Oh, there's a few. <laughs> but if I had to choose one or two that are kind of interlinked, it would just be the power of questions, how to ask good questions of yourself, of the world around you, of what's happening. A coach and mentor of mine once told me that the quality of your life depends on the quality of questions you're asking. So really mm. um, asking better questions of why things are happening, how they've come to be, what your place is, seeing the unlikely intersections between things, I think asking questions and kind of tied to that, just the importance of self-awareness or self-reflection. So perhaps this is the asking of questions to oneself. Why am I showing up in the way that I am? How have I come to hold this worldview? How does this really serve me? What are the downsides of this approach? And often we don't want to look at that part of ourselves or acknowledge perhaps what I'm doing isn't really that helpful, but the humility and the passion and the, the awareness of just how important it is to ask oneself and to constantly, in some ways, as tiring as it can seem, be willing to adapt and mold and change Yeah, how one thinks and sees and makes sense of the world based on what one is learning rather than getting on these kind of railroads and being stuck there and being rigid. So staying malleable and flexible, both with ourselves, but also in the way we see and make sense of the world. Absolutely. Asking good questions is uh, an incredibly important skill. Mm. So I'm very glad you pointed that out. Well, Shruti, thank you so much for your time. This has been an absolute pleasure. Any last words? Oh, just, yeah, grateful for the work you're doing, Jimmy. Happy to support and, and wish you all, all the best. Thank you for listening to the Levers of Exchange podcast, where we share ideas, knowledge, and best practices for achieving a sustainable future. I'm the host, Jimmy Gia, and the music is by Sean Hart. Thanks again to the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship at the Said Business School, Oxford University, for sponsoring Season 3 of this podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast for new episodes and share with a friend. Please visit our website at www.leversofexchange.com for additional episodes, books, and other resources. Thank you again. And remember, the cleantech economy will require everyone's participation. How can we exchange ideas today to help you find your role tomorrow?